Lots of idle fingers snapped to my command A lovely pair of heels that kicked to beat the band Contemplating nature can be fascinating It's time for the Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and DailyReview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y-Review.com. This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And tonight we're here to discuss the first and second episodes of the second season of Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The first one was called what? Simone. The name of that little pooch. A little. Rose got in France. Like a long-haired dachshund, maybe. I know. It's so freaking cute, right? Yeah, definitely. I'm glad we're doing episodes one and two together. If you guys have only watched one, please push pause now. But if you guys have finished two, then welcome. We're going to talk about both because we really felt like especially Abe and Rose's story had like a really easy arc here. But really also Joel's and Susie's like freakishly all had this like little and then it kind of flows into another story once we get to episode three. It's like they were made to fit right together. Let's start off with our least favorite character, Paul. Joel the Troll. <laughs> Joel starts off in, with Archie at the bar and they're just like rehashing crap. I mean, if you guys remember, Joel totally bugged out in the middle of the presentation. I love that they sprinkled in later in the episode that it was actually Emma Jean who made the chart that they were using for their presentation. I thought that was kind of hilarious. And this one of those like Amy Sherman Palladino's like women actually run the show. Like, of course, Emma Jean would be doing Archie's homework for work, you know, right. like just uh, cracks me up. They're like commiserating. They actually have this like strange moment, Paul, where like they rehash the tape whole thing. Yeah. The record, yeah. if you will. Yeah. That, I mean, Joel looked like he was just trying to save a little amount of face. Uh, Archie heard what Midge was saying on the record and it wasn't complimentary. Absolutely things. not. And so, I mean, I guess I get it that we have to start off here with this, you know, rehashing, if you will. But do you feel like other shows do this? Is this... Oh, yeah. Is this like mandatory second season kind of business where you have to be like, hey, if you remember a couple months ago, remember that thing that happened? <laughs> like, that's how we have to begin. It's not always a given that they're going to start just like the moment the first season ends, like season two of Mrs. Maisel actually does. So they start needing to establish the timeline and they need to make it easy for you to not need to go back and binge everything in the first season in order to remember where you're at for the second season. Um and so those little things that, that, although, I mean, I haven't watched it in like a year, but I knew that Joel had quit. Yeah, we all remembered what happened. It was a little like, pretty, okay. I mean, because it, was, it wasn't really encapsulating the whole last season or anything. It was just like exactly the last thing that had happened. I mean, this happens in books. The Game of Thrones books are, half of them seem to be calling back. Remember when this happened before? You know, it's, it's really, oh, so yeah, it's it, they're they're full of that. Intrigue. And recreationally, I've been listening to the Harry Potter books, and the first chapter of those is, is always like a little recounting what happened in the last book. Intrigue. Okay, yeah. well, so we catch up with Joel, and if you guys recall, he is in his childhood bedroom, listening to his parents argue. And they have this whole little storyline for Joel about coming into the factory and basically deciding that he needs to step in and make the place more efficient, starts firing people without understanding the ins and outs of why certain people do what they do. He just comes with a very wide brush of like everybody who I think in Joel's pea brain isn't doing the right thing. I'm going to call the shots here. I thought it was interesting the way that they tied that in with like all these other little moments. Like there was the moment with Midge where he like tries to convince her to get the apartment uh -huh. and it was the same thing. It was like he was just barging in knowing nothing about how anything works. He even like sort of calls himself out like, well, you'll be here without your help of your parents or Zelda. So you'll need to be like in the apartment all day. And it was like, you're like unraveling your own freaking idea, dude. Like what the frig? Well, what's interesting about both of those examples, at least from this man's perspective, is that he's only about 51% wrong. Yes, he's barging in. He's making himself a nuisance. He's, he's not asking anyone's permission or, or interest in his help. But there are certain parts of his solution that aren't exactly off base either. Very true. 
Uh, except for those parts where he doesn't get like the nuance of things. So yeah. like, for instance, right. like he wants to fire Manny and it turns out that like his wife is, I believe, the best sem- seamstress. So we can't fire Manny because Dadoy, then we lose our best seamstress or the other guy, Pete or whatever. The was back there. Wife, yeah, the embroidery right. wife. Like it was like he didn't catch all the other things. And it's like he treated Midge the same way. Like. He just didn't catch like she doesn't want to quit her career. She doesn't want to stay home and raise the kids alone. She doesn't want to be away from her parents. She doesn't you're like you're trying to make things right, but you're kind of just being obtuse. He he wants to provide and he thinks she needs her own place. But then he's perfectly willing to rationalize those other consequences, the needing to stay home and all that other kind of stuff that he never even thought he thinks he knows, which is. That she wants to stay home, of course. What did you think about this storyline about the way that the Maisel's factory actually worked with all these, the financial books and the the secret money stashed everywhere, basically like these sort of loan shark guys? Well, I kind of wonder what Moish is in charge of, actually, because I don't know. He seemed like he was the, just for lack of a better term, the brains behind the operation. But I mean, <laughs> not really. Right. It's very cobbled together is like the reality of it. And maybe maybe it's more truthful to a small business than most of us would want to think. You know, there really is a lot of like, well, I paid that guy off. And well, you know, when they come and break the windows, that means we pay the loan back. And, you know, like maybe there's just like a lot more of that going on around us than we're probably aware of. I think there's definitely a lot more like living off the grid in terms of like this idea of like going to the bank and asking for a loan. That's only 1% of the population somewhere. I'm not saying one as in the number one, but like a portion of the population. But there, there's a whole other way to be doing things. Certainly, we all know people put money under their bed and it, sh- it shined a light on it in a way that was like, that's really interesting and, and funny, of course. They had to make it hilarious with her, Mrs. Maisel Sr., if you will, doing the like bagel stickers in the book and all that. Do you think that they're just poking fun in like a very general way? I mean, this is, they're obviously Jewish people. Now, I am not familiar with the Jewish culture enough to in any way. We're not here to promote stereotypes on (laughs) Daily Review. Caroline is actually somehow ignorant of most racial stereotypes. I've had to educate her. Oh, that's funny. About those kinds of things, just (laughs) just, just so she can stay with it in the conversation. But we're not going to talk about that. So I don't be racist, are you saying? No, no. (laughs) So when you hear something racist, you can at least know that it's being racist. Oh. You know what I mean? Do you think I, huh? Like, okay. Talking about Jewish people and money is a way to be either funny or very offensive. And I think they're they're funny here. But, you know, if you wanted to take it the wrong way, you might take it the wrong way. Okay. I totally 150% agree that that talking about Jewish people and money. Okay. I'm not stupid. I got that part. <laughs> I, I thought you meant the part about like the practice of the loaning money within the community well, and then not being that part, that, in the formal banking system and all that stuff. Right. Like, I, that part, I don't, I thought that's what you were speaking to. Yeah. That I am. That's the part. Everyone knows the stereotype about the money, but they might not know this other stuff about the informal ways of, of dealing with the money. Finances? I yeah. don't know. I don't know if this is if this is accurate. I did think that they did a great job of bringing in like the secretary and Mrs. like- Mrs. Moskowitz, right? Oh my God. That whole thing about he's it like- It is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> So funny. And just that like the books were done in like a dead language. And this storyline, it works for me that like now Joel is going to end up actually partnering with his dad and making this a family business. It almost seems like this was this was so natural from the beginning. You know, that they probably would have been partners. Sure. But I, I'm glad that they they did this the way they did it, where it seems like there is actually a need for Joel to come and actually help maybe break some of those, well, we've always done it this way kind well, of you, you were moments. Joel and you had no prospects, yeah, except this for this one thing that you com- will inherit. But the way that it's being run, there might be nothing to inherit. Right. You know what I mean? Totally true. And it's funny that you said it like that. No prospects. So we went back to his family business, right? That's funny because that's how he felt like he was with with Midge. Like no prospects. So he like totally went back and started like, Midge needs this apartment. I need to be a dad. But it was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about your life with Penny Pan? Yeah, we're Penny Get out of here. Pan. Freaking Joel. Really panned out. <laughs> nice. That pretty much wound up Joel's storyline for these first two episodes. We did have a moment with Midge that we should mention that obviously has to do with Joel. They actually 
had the moment where they had the flashback to right after the tape played, trying to apologize and trying to make good on it. And it him actually taking his ring off and giving it to her and everything. What do you think about that scene? Well, he explains it later during the phone call Yeah, from France. He didn't say it right then, but they're tied together where it's that he, he both wants her to be a, a successful comedian. He respects her for doing something that he can't do. It's just, have you ever been to an Ali Wong show, people out there in the world? I have. Do you remember how she talks about her husband? Yes, I do. It's not super great, really. That dude's got to be able to take a effing joke like nobody else. Yes. She talks about having sex with all kinds of just random people out in the world. And then just the kinds of shit that they do together. And Joel's not willing to be Ali Wong's beau. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. That's a very accurate way. I don't know if I could. Like if you were a stand-up comedian and you were going to go out there and talk about our lives. I know we talk about it on, on podcasts, but... We There's a limit. Right. We don't like <laughs> mock it. You know, I mean, like we share our lives, but I don't think that we like annihilate one another. And I mean, that's like really I, I don't I don't know how Midge ever really thought that she was going to continue to do this act at all having to do with the affair and, and any of that and simultaneously be wooing Joel. Like that is very compartmentalized. I, I don't quite know how that works. Well, you had asked while we were watching about how long is she going to milk this air stuff? And well, I don't mean to say milk. What, what I actually said was it's reasonable that her act would evolve as her life changed. So it's not as if for the rest of her stand up career, she's going to talk about having had, you know, a, a bust up marriage. That's not necessarily right. always going to be in her act. So it sort of felt a little short sighted that it's like, well, but it's this not is just days later. So, of course, I of mean, course. going back to that Ali Wong example, apparently you can go about a year and a half on the same jokes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's true. We went and saw Ali a second time and it was the same show. <laughs> and it was back in our city again. We were like, wait, what? How'd you how, come all the way back? How did with this the happen? Same that, jokes. These were the exact same jokes. Like, what? Same delivery, same timing. It was very odd. I, I love Ali Wong and you guys should totally listen to her. But if it's the second time you've heard the jokes, she she had a lot less passion for the jokes the second time, <laughs> let me tell you. So it yeah. was just like, huh? All in all, I feel like that like ties up Joel. And I really want to leave his storyline because he's my least favorite character. Goodbye, Joel. Seriously. Ta-ta. Okay, so any of you guys who have watched Gilmore Girls may very well have recognized the storyline that came about with Abe and Rose in episodes one and two. I love Amy Sherman Palladino, and I, I don't mind that she has these sort of like bag of jokes that she carries from show to show. She does it from Gilmore to Bunheads to now Maisel, there are not only similar leading ladies, there are not only similar relationships that she has with different people, including like the dads and the daughters and things like that. But in this case, this dynamic of Rose and Abe basically breaking up for a short period of time here is very similar to Richard and Emily's breakup on Gilmore Girls. To the extreme of the arguments about how Emily's going to head off to Europe, essentially go to Paris. And like, as if this is the place all women flee, when we're, <laughs> we're going to break up with our husbands, we all go to France. I, I thought for me as a Gilmore Girl lover, I didn't hate this, but I could see where other people would be like, uh... Should they have like changed it up a little bit? I mean, well, the broad strokes been... were the same, but I mean, Abe handled it similarly to Richard, but with sure it is. Richard went and crashed his car into the guy that was taking Emily okay. out in a date. I mean, that's that's going to get her. Abe was Abe like talked a lot more, uh, <laughs> you know, in the in the way that Abe delivers things. Essentially, they both went and got their wives back. After, I mean, Richard took kind of a lot longer. Did you notice they both have mustaches? There's so many similarities, <laughs> honest to God. I mean, down to like the beginning part where like the conversation where Rose decides to leave, Abe's like holding the newspaper up in front of his face and essentially not listening to her. That scene plays out in Gilmore Girls 
a gajillion times, a million different dinners, a million different times. You I mean, know, that's in the credits. When, yes, when, he when, puts it on the paper. Yes, <laughs> yes. I like these two characters. I like how it played out. I like the Amazon streaming level intensity and swearing and the whatnot that could be added because it didn't have to be as family friendly. Mm-hmm. As Gilmore has to be, so I appreciated that. I thought, but you was, can't not compare them. And yes, they needed to be. You can compare them. That's a fair thing. But through the whole story of Gilmore Girls, uh, by the end of it, you sh- you're supposed to realize that Emily is one of the girls, even though you're thinking Lorelai and and Rory. But yes. you're supposed to think by the end of it, actually, Emily. Yeah, it's Emily, Lorelai, and Rory, right? But for for Maisel, Rose was highly underserved in season one. I agree. I she agree. Just, she got the fewest lines, I think, and looked sad most of the time. I agree. I know? agree. So you're right. She definitely had, I mean, a very strong storyline in these first two episodes. And a very strong character. Like she was very defined. Like, like yes. you know, um, I, I live here now. <laughs> yeah. So know? let's talk about this a little bit. If you guys don't remember um, what was going on. So she was very disappointed with everything going on in New York City and everything with their lives. You know, she felt like Miriam had let her down. She felt like Abe had let her down. And basically her life there just didn't have anything to do with who she was or what she needed to do. I thought that this was so bold of her. It was interesting that she went back and essentially found the um, the room that she was a student in, you know, a million years ago. We're trying to kind of age them. We think they're like in their 50s. She gets a dog. She has this really like dumpy apartment, but somehow it's like romantic and like it doesn't come off gross to her. It comes off like so avant-garde and, you know, she's like eating dinner at nine and all this stuff. Like, I, I mean, I think women around the world could appreciate this idea of like getting away from whatever is your everyday life. It doesn't have to necessarily be your family or whatever, but your everyday life, just sucking out of that and spending time like studying art, reading, taking it slow, you know, eating these nine o'clock dinners. Like it's very luxurious, you know, and they point that out, like how Midge is like very pays attention to the fashion in France and all this stuff. Everything though, like like how um, Rose stopped and watched the nuns walk with the little uniformed children, and you know, there's these moments that were all over France that really made you feel like American life is so fast paced, stuck in this like get to work, get to whatever, and they point that out and continuously, and the, and Rose says the words like stop. And like, look around you, you're in France, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like live in the moment. And I mean, that is very like a fantasy of many women. I don't know what men think about. I guess there's like man caves and but the idea of running off to France and having this like fantasy luxurious life is very understandable. Depends on the man. I mean, yeah, there's the Ted, not Ted, there's Al Bundy's that just need a couch. And and a designated time where they're not bothered, right? Remember that was Al's birthday. Oh my god, right? I forgot. <laughs> but we also uh, our brother-in-law. He he routinely books um, trips all around the world to just take photographs and not talk, worry about, think, family for however long he's gone. That's just understood. That's an adventure as well. Yeah. So I, I think that it, it is understandable that people need to like get out and, and break away from the everyday norm. And and whether that's an annual thing um, or whether this is, you know, in this case, she's she's making a hard break. Now, do you think that Rose always intends that Abe's going to come find her? Is it more one of those things that if he doesn't change enough to come and find her, then she doesn't want him anyway. I would go with B. Uh, she she looked very convincing as willing to just, you know, start here now doing f- France stuff. You know? <laughs> or French things. Right? Start with the art and... With Simone. The, Simone the dog. <laughs> right. I mean, she sold it to me that that was her life from then on. So some of the little like moments that I totally loved was Abe like comes in and he's like, I just saw a cockroach heading to your door. And Rose is like, did you want me to kill it for you? <laughs> like I those Amy Sherman Valadino moments where it's like so quippy and so like you're right that in that moment, like could Rose feel any more freaking defiant and like independent and like i got this like fucking bring a cockroach on like i don't need you i don't need anybody you need me kill that cockroach for you i got that you know like 
I thought that those moments were awesome. I thought when they were coming in and that French woman was like yammering at them and when Mitch is like, she's drafting us because like she was like totally <laughs> would leave them alone. Oh my God. It's so funny. All of it was so funny. I wish I knew what the span of days were exactly. It is hard to tell. Being the Abe from New York and then the Abe that's in Paris, that's not a light switch flipping kind of thing. You know, he does legit chill out, you know? He does. I think that there was that commitment to saying, I'm not leaving here without my wife. You have to imagine that, you know, the parts that they showed us, you're right, could not have been day two or day three of being there. Like he he had to have had some amount of like decompressing to where he realized like, you're not going to talk her into six o'clock dinner and you better just get with the way that things go here. Like sleeping... I in thought, the same but, single bed with, but e- with each other. wasn't that adorable? Like, could that yeah. be more... Like, that was so romantic. When you know that back in New York City, he spent so little time paying attention to her or being next to her that he didn't even know her closet was empty. They didn't sleep in the same bed. Um, they had, like, you know, twin beds and stuff. And then here they are on, like, this sad little cot. But the dog jumps on there with them. And they couldn't be, like, more cozy and happy. Like legit, or at least I want to say like connecting, right? Like Uh they were both, they both were in the moment there and they were both enjoying it. Did you enjoy their activities that they did around France? Did you feel like you wanted to have these little adventures, these little pit stops with them? I did. How he uh, commiserated with the other know-it-all men. uh, (laughs) Argued, right? I wouldn't be arguing about those exact things, but I I think I could find three other guys to talk about Star Wars controversies with. uh, But, but But I think the interesting thing about that is that it wasn't about Star Wars and that it was about like literature and it was about like... Uh, well, like, I can't hang with nihilism talk. <laughs> uh, I'm not well schooled enough. And I'm not saying shit about Star Wars. It's nothing like that. We all, I mean, hell, come on now. We're all ensconced in pop culture around here. But it, <laughs> the <laughs> idea that you don't have to talk about just that last movie or whatever, but that you could talk about like a work of art or a work of literature from 100 years ago and actually debate it with other people in a way that was like smart and interesting. How envious are most of us as like TV reviewers? Because that's really what all we all want, right? We want to sit down with people who have like seen the same things we have and we want to like debate it and yak it up, right? Yeah. So like that would be so fun to get up every morning, go have your coffee and be like, you know, what's today? Lost, you know, good ending or not. Like, let's go. I mean, that's what we did when we went to the leftovers hangout. Remember? People actually, you know, remembered the characters' names and events and things. Wasn't that lovely? Yes, it was. Again, and the whole like tying it back in. I mean, when they toasted Proust, I had to kind of have like a gut check Gilmore Girl moment because I'm like, come on. If y'all don't remember, Max Medina was totally about Proust. I, I liked that they injected all this art with her because to me, that felt new. That's not something that was in Gilmore and that's not Bunheads went into dance, but art and studying like more the the classics of very fresh and, you know, Rose discussing the sculpture and how could you look at a block of, you know, marble or something and know what it could be. And I think that that's fascinating and and would be certainly to me a, a wonderful break from reality. And at that time, I mean, I might just be talking about out of my ass here, but I got to imagine that at that time, the best stuff was in Europe. We just kind of collect things in America as people buy them, collect them, trade in and out of different collections, stuff like that. But you can see some good stuff here now. I think that they really went far to show us how much they like were in the, the farmer's markets and the, like the it was like a fresh squeezed lemonade kind of stand. How much more natural and like almost like back to basics kind of things that that it felt like, even though I know this is a different time period than now. But at the same time, whenever I think of them in New York and I think about what people were doing, like I think of Ethan sitting in front of the TV mm. as like the things that are recreation or you have Abe sitting cloistered in his office Mm -hmm. but there was so different i mean this was like walking along the sin and you know dancing and just like so much more just enjoying life out loud like out in the the world you know so much more interesting is the way that they painted it i think the big clue might have been when the uh transition when New York flopped over and onto Paris. I mean, that's more than just like, we're going to the other side of the world. I think that's like symbolically, it's like everything here is the opposite of 
what it is there. A hundred percent. Yeah. It was interesting to see how Rose had this transition where she was very happy in that little room, supposedly sharing the bathroom down the hall and all that. But then to kind of watch her kind of be steering them back into a more formal apartment with a much larger space. And, mm, yeah. you know, all I mean, it was almost like she was starting to bring their New York life there, you know? And mm-hmm. I appreciated that Abe was like putting on the bricks because it was like, whoa, 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 sister. Like we have this life in New York. Like why, why, you know, like this doesn't make any sense. Plus, I mean, hello, the whole like tenureship at Columbia. Yeah, you I don't mean, get this that was up. not right. I mean, this was like not going to happen. But I appreciated that Rose had this moment. It seems like as much as she wants to live this simple life in Paris, I mean, it seems like she kind of can't help herself but to really go back to the life that she knew in a lot of ways, or at least trying to bring it to France. I think it's a big combination of things because once she was back in New York, I think she was resigned to having her transformed Abe just dissipate into the wind. I thought it was amazing what actually happened. However, when he comes back in and he's like, so you're going to meet me at 10? And she's like, what are you talking about? And he actually like says that he made all these arrangements to have her be able to audit the art classes, even though I'm guessing it's not historically accurate. That's why they bothered to put those lines in about how he had to like make special arrangements because like a woman wouldn't have been allowed at a Columbia class. Like that was all like seemed very Mm. like they had to put that in so no one yelled like she could never have done that i appreciated that and then he went so far as to say that he signed them up for dance classes y'all you have heard it from caroline's mouth more than once man who can dance or is willing to it's just willing just fucking willing y'all just willing do not let go of that man okay because this is like they will be snatched up in a moment so for sure i thought that that as being like the end to their story of this arc that he signed them up for dance classes shut up i mean (laughs) they brought the romance from france so i thought that was that was awesome do you feel fulfilled by abe and rose's like two episode little arc here do you feel like they did a good job with it i do it felt complete and also like the beginning of a of, of an interesting new section of their life to see kind of if Abe can keep it up and if it's enough for Rose, whatever they do manage to work out. Now, within the Abe Rose storyline, we had Midge, who comes along hilariously because Abe thinks she speaks French, manages to get all the way to France to the door where Rose is before he realizes that she doesn't, in fact, know French. And that is the only reason why he brought her. thought that was so funny. But Midge herself has these moments of clarity in France. So we have the dinner with Rose where Abe ends up taking off. They have this conversation outside about generally, you know, you've you've made this commitment to this life and the grandkids and all this kind of stuff. What the hell? They had that moment in the apartment where she's like, I missed you, mom. And Rose says, I missed me too. That was like, <laughs> whoa, right? There was like all these little moments where I felt like Midge was like starting to kind of like question her own, you know, what am I doing? Who am I? What am I doing? And, you know, they have her go stand alone on that same you know section of the bridge with the, the dancers and everything yeah we do have that conversation with joel that finally ends everything with him but then she has this completely other experience in the french club on review this felt like we have to have midge on stage every episode it's like it's like they went back to find what worked in season one and decided to implement those things in season two regularly. I haven't seen the rest of season two except for these two episodes. So I can't say if Midge gets on stage every episode, but she did in these two. And the other thing that I think worked really well were the Abe on screen, basically. He was he wasn't on screen every episode and he, and he wasn't on screen a lot in the episodes that he was in season one. In these two episodes it's like lots of a Abe, lot of which Abe, I know you love. And she gets to be on stage at least once a show. To me though, this was this was more than that. I mean I thought that first of all they had that amazing Amazing duo between her and the French translator, interpreter. Yeah, that was, I bet that was hard to film. I can't even imagine. It was so dynamic, so amazing. It was eye-opening, even for me as like American woman, to have her try to play the same jokes in France and have them flop so hard because the idea that a man has a girlfriend or in any way has an affair was like, 
so not anything. And then when she's like, well, how many of you have had a secretary, you know, like a, like yell at you in the streets and like 10 people raise their hands. That's like a gut check that like, A, you're not that special. And B, you're very narrow minded. If you think that like the world only works in the way you think things happen in your little neck of the woods. Yeah, all these people are out. All these. Yeah, they're like, yeah, so people sleep with other people. Welcome to the world, baby girl. Grow the fuck up. And it seemed like it was really interesting that like the the drag queens even, you know, having it be a drag club. Guess what? Men dress up like women. Like it was like a whole big everybody is going to grow up from the, the gaslight right now and realize that like the world's a really big, colorful place. I liked that because I think that it made her come back with more confidence and also like humble her a little bit. You think your story is like, oh, so special. I mean, her, the, everyone was like staring at her blankly in the club. What is even your problem? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like you're just describing everyday life. Like, what is the deal? It made her grow, you know, and, and have to have that, I don't know, even better introspection, if that makes sense. She got there quickly because she adapted the act midstream she did so that the jokes became funny again yeah like she recognized like i loved it when she was like uh like the day we found out found out of the fair or whatever and, and then she says something like or as you would call it thursday like like stuff like you know it's like these big moments for her just like you're just not that big of a deal you know in the big world she came back renewed you know and ready to sort of take on this world in a different way or at least realize there's like a lot of other things going on than your tiny little life you know and she doesn't need to think about Joel anymore at all, Man, really, except God. for when he makes those weird calls to, to go. Can we all like hope that that's the facts of it? We do have to have like one second in time when uh, in France that when we have like the troubadours and like the guy playing like the bass, that's totally Dan Palladino for any of you guys who don't know. He's totally married to Amy and is like creator as well and writer. And he plays bass like he sings on Gilmore Girls. He sings this song called Beaver ate my thumb. It's super funny. So that's not I, him playing this. Bass. No, it is not. It's him. just a shout out. It is to a him. total shout yeah. out to him. I can't walk away from France without without pointing that moment out. I I thought you'd point out the woman who was dancing oh, with them. That, that was little, her part. Uh, I, I love that. That's a total Miss Patty move. Yeah, that I, well, and she stole my moves. Those are my exact <laughs> dance moves. That is how Paul dances. Like the gopher from Caddyshack. Mm -hmm. That's exactly his. Now I can say I dance like a French woman. So it kind of <laughs> sound more exotic. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you should. Yeah, stop telling people you dance like the gopher. That's hysterical. I love it. So meanwhile, Susie has this like crazy incident with these goons. Paul, freaking goons. Although I got to say, how much did you love how they introduced Susie back into our mix? I really loved it, actually. I mean, I keep replaying it in my <laughs> in my mind because she says it as if she's kind of already mid-conversation with you. She's like, fuck off. You know, it's... <laughs> so if you guys don't remember, Susie's laying down in the bed and she's asleep and the phone rings and she's just like, fuck off. Yeah. like I believe after having seen that, that's how Caroline wakes up at least twice during the work week. <laughs> I kind of do. At least twice. I do. I do. I feel like our phone's always ringing. And, it, and, and I do kind of like immediately wake up like, fuck off. Like, what the hell? <laughs> don't, uh, don't call Caroline in the morning. Don't, please don't. Please. It's Shall we call it her non-productive time? <laughs> call me at 2 a.m. and we can gab like nobody's business. But please leave me alone. So I loved it how she contacts Midge, who is now, if you guys remember, was not able to stay up at the Revlon counter after the Penny Pan incident. So now Midge is down as a basement girl, as a telephone operator. And when Susie calls her and is like, how can I connect you? And Susie goes straight up your ass. I was like, oh my God. These are like her first two lines, like literally her first. I was like, I just, Susie is just so great. I love every second about her. Well, she had an interesting subplot going on this season. Those goons that take her, right? Yep. They're they from Harry Drake. They said that they said yes. they said Harry Drake at some yeah. point. Yeah, that's that is who sent them. And I mean, it's I mean, she pulled this big move with Lenny Bruce, you know, bringing Midge back into the fold even after he had already said like no on this. Yeah, she did this interview where she was trying to expand her profile, and the interview actually came out and everything. So Harry was like hard no, you know, like now he's going to put like the big clamp down. You you guys know that we have a child who happens to be deaf and blind, and so for me, the jokes in the cab about the miracle worker and Annie. 
12 and I'm like, Amy, why you always got to do this? Because she said the same jokes in Gilmore Girls. I have a very thick skin about this. I see it coming a mile away because Amy always does this joke. Um, but like, wah, wah, wah. All right. Please let this be the last miracle worker. <laughs> Helen Keller joke. Please, please, please. They move on to the girl from the Rockaways thing. I totally didn't see this playing out the way it did that Susie was going to win them over. I don't know how I thought it was going to work. I guess I knew she would talk her way out of it, but I didn't think it was going to happen quite like this. I mean, she gets out of everything and gets even sent home with uh with uh, like a leftovers. Bag, yeah. right? I thought that that was so interesting and clever and just made Susie's character that much more fun and cool. I love that she was like, this is the best abduction I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> right? She's so funny. Um, you know, I think that this interesting setup of like, now she's going to be on the lamb from Harry Drake and any like future goons was real intriguing because it did make a lot of sense that now she has to go stay at the Weissman's apartment. Okay, the hijinks when she is like actually over in the Wiseman's apartment. Oh my God. It was like so home alone to do like the montage, like because she's like like gonna make her hair like into like it's very Ferris Bueller's day off-ish, right? I know I've seen the joke before where like someone's uncle or something that he's staying at the house and there's post-its everywhere. Yes. It's like a Ned Flanders kind of move. Yes, yes. And uh Homer just grabs them all and throws them all away. <laughs> <laughs> Which is essentially what she does, pink soap, et cetera. Where'd she get the joint, though? It was in Midge's drawer. Midge's drawer? Yeah, it was after she was listening to the records, the comedy records. I loved everything. I loved her snooping around. I loved her wearing Abe's robe. This is shit I would totally do. I would absolutely go find the comfortable robe. I would absolutely take a bubble bath. I would do all this. All everything she did, I would get into. Same. By the way, Caroline is opening up a house sitting business. If <laughs> right, you're right. Interested? I will totally use your pink soap. I'm just <laughs> letting you know. It's not that I don't respect your stuff. Just I want to have a good time, and it seems funny. What is stuff anyway? <laughs> what is personal space? <laughs> Imogene comes in. That the actress Bailey DeYoung is actually pregnant. In real life. Imogene looks supersonic pregnant in this scene. I loved all of this business with Susie being high in the bathtub. And and when Imogene's like, who are like, why, why are you here? Like, what, who do you know? What are you doing? And she does that like puppet move. And she goes, the, the little brunette. <laughs> and she like does that little puppet move with her hand. Oh my God. Classic. Why is Susie Sus so bad with names? She's high, dude. No, but she's always like, whenever you ask her her name, she never tells you her name. And when you, when you ask her about somebody else, she doesn't know their names. Like she does this like all last season. All, I guess so I would far. say maybe, but that's part of why she is where she is in life. Like if she, she's very like a smart mouth, but she's not necessarily the brightest bulb, right? I mm. mean, and I'm not say that in a snotty way. I just mean like if she did remember everybody's name and get all the numbers right on the business card and, you know, then, then she would be more successful. So there has to be like parts to her that are, that are quirky and kind of flawed like that because that's why you work at the gaslight and why people think you're a boy and all this stuff all the time <laughs> like you're just kind of doing it wrong all the time you know it's kind of her amelia bedelia side if you will right i love that they had Susie bonding with ethan and like they were like sharing a sandwich and everything because i don't know if you remember in season one but she like despised ethan it was the whole jam hands mm -hmm. which yeah. if you guys remember from gilmore girls that's luke's bit of saying that little kids always have jam hands. Susie does the same thing where she's like, his hands, they're sticky. What is this? And they're like, it's jam. Doesn't he take a swig out of her bottle? Yes. <laughs> that was super funny. I thought that having Midge come back and, and be able to talk with Susie and figure out their next steps was so important to setting us up for this whole second season. I was so excited that she actually was going to be able to move forward, given this Harry Drake situation. I, you know, I didn't really know where they were going to go with this second season. I mean, it ended so badly. Yeah. what I mean, the, the Harry Drake business is uh, an interesting way to add tension in a way that I'm not used to with Amy shows. Like that's true. Like that like there's the one episode where Luke and, and Christopher get into a fist fight. That'd be Mary Fisticuffs. But other than that, there's not really a whole lot of threat of physical anything, consequences, uh, happenings, events, anything in that show. Very true. And I bet Bunheads is even lower. <laughs> 
Uh, right. So um, it's more about like hamstring pulls and stuff. Yeah. So the idea that there's a that there's somebody gunning for Susie and potentially Midge yeah. um, is it's an interesting angle that that adds a layer to this that you know we're 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 pointing out things or Caroline is pointing out things that she recognizes as callbacks to <laughs> that's a generous way to put it callbacks to Amy's previous work and now this is a new thing that, that I think makes the next 8 episodes really really worth looking forward to for old experienced Amy viewers like us yeah, I think so, too. OK, so let's talk about her first real gig post Lenny Bruce, this whole scene with these other fellow male comedians. It's real easy to bash men right now in pop culture. We're an easy target. Were these guys, do you think, just representative of guys from the 50s that talked like they did in the 50s and they just were were naturally putting down Midge just in the course of conversation because that's just the way men talked? Or do you think that's highly influenced by the atmosphere that we're in right now, just in Hollywood and, and elsewhere. Are you asking me, do I think it's realistic? Yeah. Or is it being informed by the current climate? Yeah, that's it. That's Which it. part? The second one. Um, I think it's exactly what men would do. And I think if Me Too had never happened, it's exactly what men would do. All so right. I think in terms of like, uh, do I think they're trying to paint men in a bad light because of the Me Too movement? No. I think that absolutely in a 100% male-dominated profession like comedy, I think that having a woman show up in what is essentially like an evening gown that she was wearing, I think she'd be a sitting duck. I think they're assholes for treating her so poorly in terms of like, if you think you're such a man and this is a male-dominated situation, then you I guess you could treat her like like a young girl who's trying to do something. So you could be kind of condescending or whatever. But the way that they were kind of talking to her more like a slut, more like, what did, what did you do to get Lenny to do that? Well, yeah. I'd sleep with Lenny, too. That to me seemed like I'm sure realistic, but like dick moves. I mean, like like beyond just not saying her name correctly, stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. One hundred and fifty percent. You would purposely mess up her name. Yes. Mm hmm. But the that but like going that far, that it sucks. Like they're actually jerks, you know, like even further than reminds me of uh Madman with Peggy and the assumption that Peggy had put oh. out for Don. Hell yeah. And and that persisted, I think, forever. I mean, she didn't really get a good chance to to correct that. And that was never intended to be a me too y sort of thing. You know, that was just yeah, trying I don't to represent think any the time. of this. I don't think any of this has to do with it. I and and I think me too is a mirror of what happens in real life. It, it's not people aren't doing stuff on TV because they think they're depicting a me too situation. They're depicting what's really happening at the office. And no. that's why me too exists, but it's not that's Writers not aren't I mean. writing oh, I a Me Too moment. Be. No, not a Me Too moment. A, a, what do you think that they're doing? Appealing to a Me Too oriented crowd. I, I just don't think it's necessary. I think that that's exactly what would happen. I mean, if they tried to make it where they were all welcoming to her, that would ring totally false. Oh, for sure. So then in that case, like they, you, not, know, you see what I'm saying? But not even one at least shred of, of uh, I don't know. gentlemanliness. It's like, see, to me, see, the, the time... Makes me feel that way. Like, gosh, you know, this is like the 50s. I mean, she's wearing like crinoline under her dress. Maybe that is like the real deal, though. We think it's all bobby socks and whatever. And the reality is like, no, men were men and women were women. People talked crassly. They smoked. They drank. They slept around. Like, that's the France moments, right? Like, be grown up. Yes, it was the 1950s. People still had affairs. People still smoked joints. People still did all these things. Like, it's it, it was more quiet it was more covered up but people were still people you know it was all still happening the same so i thought that they that bumping her the way they did really put her in this position of like what else could you do but like bust balls once you got up there i mean oh yeah geez. i think you had to swing for the fences because you needed someone there to remember you because the the crowd had thinned out so much they'd already had all their drinks had all their food whatever they were there for and they were you know, thinking about going home. I don't even know if it was a swing for the fences or if it was like this sucked so hard and the way you treated me was so shitty that as like a natural comedian, now that I have the mic and the spotlight, thank you, Susie, for going up there and running it. You have to listen to me. It was about 
ripping them all a new one now that she had the power. And they did not like what was dished out. I, the Booker did not like what was dished out. Sort of like how Jane Lynch and Harry Drake didn't like it. Very, very similar, Paul. I would definitely agree. I loved, though, that in that moment when the Booker like screams at them, like, you cannot like come here and bash all the other comedians that everyone else came to see. Like, you can't do that. I love when he walked away that Midge and Susie were like, our first gig, <laughs> like totally <laughs> high fived. I'm like, that's that's so them. You know, that's so like the plucky. We're going to scrape by, get get to the top kind of girls that I love, totally love. Were there any moments that really stuck out about these two episodes that you feel like we really need to highlight? I know I have a couple of other Gilmore Girls moments that I didn't want to forget. Something about the choreography in the the switchboard room. Yes. When she's buzzing in between people's different stations and everything. It reminded me a lot of Suki in the kitchen. Yes, um, I love that. How people would just kind of pirouette around her so that she could go and do her... <laughs> her thing and then, you know, pick up things that she was going to leave getting on fire or whatever. But it was very choreographed and I'm sure it took ages to film because it was timing. It had to, had to be exactly right so that it looked natural. Yes. And that's, that's the same effect that they had here. Um, something that, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there are people that, that do that kind of thing in real life, but having it, have them spin in and out of each other's spots and all that just perfectly, maybe not that well. Very you know? smooth. Speaking yeah. of super smooth, also like the dancers, um, you know, all the kind of ballroom moments that they, that they had throughout these two episodes, that was very much reminded me of in the revival of having the, the, the dancers in the, the jazz club and Bunhead's callback to a lot of that stuff. If you don't know, Amy Sherman Palladino at one stage in her life had to decide between professional dance or filmmaking, basically. She was that into it, that good, that big a deal at one point in her life. So if you're wondering, how come all this freaking dancing keeps coming up? It's because it's a big, big deal. To and with Dan, he music is a huge deal to him. I think when you combine the two of them, you get these like musical kind of numbers, you know, even if they're small moments, like you said, her in the operator room, it is a dance. It is a choreographed dance. You know, it's in a chair and, you know, but there, but it is a dance. Right. And there's a lot of those moments that are sprinkled throughout that I love that, that give this show like so much personality, gives it the whole Palladino, you know, charm. The Cynthia Plath joke when they're in France. Oh my God. When she's like, um, here's my, here's a psychiatrist uh, phone number. She's working wonders with my friend, Sylvia Plath. I was like, oh my God, there's a total sticking head in the oven Sylvia Plath joke that Lorelai does. There, I think about the choreography aspect of that yes. physical stuff. It makes me re-examine the, the way that they treat the dialogue. People just know it because, you know, it's wordy, it's fast, and it's kind of the way you'd like to talk if you could think about what you said before you said it. You know what I mean? But if you, like, go back and look at, say, the, the scene in the textile mill with the Maisels and Mrs. Moskowitz, I've never, I don't remember her from anything ever, even in this show. Even if she's been in the show, I don't remember her. Maybe okay, she was. Okay, here's the side note. She was put in place of Penny Pan when the fact that Joel was sleeping with Penny was revealed. So then Mrs. Moskowitz became Joel's secretary. Okay, there you go. So that's a small part. Very, yeah. She expertly stepped into this dance of conversation between the three Maisels. Mm -hmm. that scene just really works in a, Even in a the big part way. Where it's like when Joel comes in the office and sh shuts the door behind him and locks it. Yeah. He turns and the way the camera works, Mr. and Mrs. Maisel come to that glass outside, but it's like a dance move. They like, they pop up kind of, you know? Yes. And it's, I mean, it's very like flowy and smooth and stuff. Yeah. I mean, amazing camera work. And just, I think about that too, even like in terms of the camera work, like when the two goons are walking with Susie and they're walking down the dock and then the camera is, is kind of going backwards on the dock with them coming towards them. And then it swings around and it's like, suddenly they get smaller and it kind of like goes away. Mm -hmm. It's like a, 
a surreal kind of looking moment. You know, it looks like almost animated or something. It looks so unique. David Mamet's masterclass that you can watch online when he says that before writing a movie and deciding whether or not it'd be a good movie, he just he thinks about the idea, decides whether or not it would make a good play. Then he writes it like that. And the way that the scene you just described with like the, the people popping up in the window and then they come back in through the locked door and then choreography of the conversation is just so tight. I think the Paladinos probably subscribe to that idea because you could see that on stage. You know what I mean? Very much. Yeah. I <laughs> and mean, it works in a very small area and a lot of the, a lot of her shots do. I think that the way that they pay so much attention to the sets, to the costuming and to the hair and the makeup, all of those things, I think, plays into that theatrical presentation to mm -hmm. you. That feeling that everything's a little bit grander in this show than in your typical comedy, you know, and the way that they just hypercolor everything, you know, their their dresses, their red lipstick, their dark hair. Well, the scene when they're when Midge and um, Mom are are kind of arguing about the Midge's hypocrisy of her argument out on the road or the street or whatever you call it. Uh, the rue. Sure. Look at that and you'll see like there are really bright saturated colors coming that are just staring at you because so much of the rest of the screen is very dark. Mm -hmm. But there are things that are lit up or lights or signs or different things up and down the, the street, all different colors and very defined and, and I don't know I really liked that whole scene just because about the colors and the and the, the way it was composed and everything I think that that it's it gives the audience the moment to appreciate art you know in a lot of ways that it, it brings artistry back into TV you know in a lot of ways because especially a comedy you know uh, we've talked with so many friends who have said this line I don't watch comedies, but I watch Mrs. Maisel. Like I've heard that line. Yeah. And for us as podcasters, we can't really podcast about a lot of comedies because they're pretty thin a lot of times, especially in like a 30 minute show or something. There's not a whole hell of a lot for us to talk about. But the way that this show like takes the art form of television and performance and, you know, set design, music, choreography, you know, just every layer of it and cares about every layer of it. There's very few shows I think that would give the the Paris time as much time as it got. Abe and Rose walking around Paris, her walking around the museum or or any of those things like I think especially in a comedy it's like get on with it. They're not they're not going to allow you to take it in like that. Oh yeah, I mean a normal sitcom, you can like snap your fingers to a beat to how often the the uh, laugh track is inserted. It's like ha ha. ha. <laughs> ah. Right. Ah. Exactly. I always appreciate Amy's work. I think that, you know, season two for me is feeling great. Like it feels like this, although there is so much of the Gilmore feel to this, it really isn't Gilmore. It's really Amy. I can appreciate that, that she brings those characters that are really like her and the characters in her own mind or whatever, they come through these other people. There's a fair shot that Amy is Susie. <laughs> and having like seen her in person several times, her tood is very similar. Yeah. There's such a magic to this show that I, I know I've seen the next couple of episodes. So I'm really looking forward to getting deeper into, you know, like away from the season one setups of Joel and everything and like moving into another world. Well, I can't wait to see it. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Thanks a lot. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. Facebook or Twitter or wherever you find us. Please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pod people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.